passage that we're going to be looking at this morning is found in Mark chapter 1, but before you turn there, I have a kind of a parallel passage, for lack of a better term, uh, term in verse, 1 John 1, nine that I'd actually like to have you start with. And if you'd stand with me just for the reading of the word, we're going to look at 1 John 1, actually I said 1 John 1, nine. we're going to look at 1 John 1 verses 5 through 10. We're going to read that. What I'd like you to do this morning is take that passage and kind of keep it in your mind as we then look at the main passage that we'll be looking at this morning for the rest of our time. And I think that that'll help kind of tie together some of the thoughts that I'm going to do my best to bring this morning as we look at his word. So 1 John 1, 9, or 1 John 1 reads on verse 5, This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. And then, if you'd quickly turn to Mark chapter 1, I know this might be a little unorthodox to have two passages, but we're really going to be looking primarily in Mark chapter 1 this morning. But as I said, 1 John 1, I think, will help kind of anchor our thoughts this morning as we look at the story of the leper and the Lord. In Mark chapter 1, verses 40 through 45, it reads, And a leper came to him, imploring him, and kneeling, said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him and he was made clean. And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once and said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone but go, show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. But he went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town but was out in desolate places and people were coming to him from every quarter. Uh, you can be seated at this time as we uh, continue on. Before we go further, I do want to just ask the Lord to um, bless, bless his word as we continue on. Lord, I just thank you that you have given us your word here in which we can be encouraged by your grace and mercy in even what you, how you responded to the leper. And I pray that you would uh, take this passage and, and use it in our hearts and minds this morning. I pray that you would use your word in spite of the messenger this morning. I pray that your word would be given clearly so that we could be edified and encouraged and challenged because of it. And I just pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Did you know that America had even had, up until very recent times, leper colonies, kind of like we think about in the Old Testament? I had no idea. I hadn't really thought about this. But it wasn't very, very long ago that there were several. One, probably the main one, was in Hawaii. There was another one down in Louisiana. And as I was studying for this, I was, I was reading about uh, one particular lady whose name was Nancy Breed, who tells, she was interviewed in 2015 about her experience as a leper 
in a leper colony in Hawaii, and it breaks my heart to think of the things that uh, these people went through, not even by their own will. Nancy, in 1936, so that's how recent we're talking, when she was 13 years old, was diagnosed with leprosy. And let me just stop here for a moment and just uh, clarify that it's very, very most likely that the leprosy that we're talking about in modern times isn't even particularly the same, less, uh, the same leprosy, or may not be the same leprosy that was in the Old Testament or in the Bible times, and we'll, we'll kind of get to that in a moment, but there's this thing that they were referring to at least as leprosy, and I think for the point of understanding and, and for uh, our, our thinking this morning, think for a moment if you were like Nancy Breed. She says that at the age of 13 when she was diagnosed, they, they, they found that she had this uh, this disease that would uh, eat away at her, and she had no choice. As a 13-year-old girl, they took her away. She said, we didn't even, I didn't even get to say goodbye. She was diagnosed and immediately carted off against her will to this leper colony. She said that as she was leaving, all she got to do is wave from a distance to her mother until she could see her mother no more. And she spent 72 years in this leper colony. In 2015, at the age of 92, she was given her story. She said that most of the people there, they became a very tight-knit community because it was all they had. Now, that particular leper colony was probably uh, like luxury compared to uh, what they went through in the Old Testament. But she says that many of them forgot who their families even were. They began to forget their identity, their family identity, because they had lost contact. Many of the families moved on without them. And they stayed there forced against their will, imprisoned. In fact, in the Louisiana uh, leper colony that I, as I was reading, they were, they were arrested and taken there as if they were criminals, and they had uh, fences like a criminal prison would have, and that if they tried to escape, they were brought back in shackles around their legs. The men were kept from the women, and it was all in the name of keeping the contagious away from the rest of the society. Well, that kind of hits home a little bit with the recent events that we've had here and some of the things that, uh, and, and not even to get into that, to not even get to the politics of it, but I think we can probably think a little bit about the pain and the anguish that I would face and you would face if all of a sudden you were diagnosed with something that would take you away from your family and your friends forever. Fortunately, they found for this leprosy, which uh, is also referred to as Hansen's disease for this modern form of leprosy, a cure was found, and, and, and this is uh, since then, uh, I'm going to say in the 1950s or so, uh, they, they began to have progress with the, the cure for this. And, and so now, uh, there are still leper colonies around the world, but at least uh, in our society, there's, they're able to live with more, more of like a, a normal medical situation and, and be cured from it and that sort of thing and not have to be taken apart. But now let's look at the leprosy of the Bible, which, like I said before, is actually very different than just the medical condition of modern leprosy. First off, we notice in the passage that we looked at this morning that it refers to him being cleaned, not healed. And that's a significant point, because leprosy was not an illness to be healed by a doctor, but it was an impurity. The priest was the one that would diagnose it, if that's the right term. And it was an, it was an issue of purity before God, 
more than it was an issue of an illness to be healed. Purity was required to be in right standing with God or to enter his presence. We see that in Psalm 24. It says that only the one who has clean hands and a pure heart may ascend the mountain of the Lord and stand in his holy place. And lepers were regarded as impure and unholy. This unholy condition, and this is uh, what I'm about to say right here is um, a quote from a commentator that says, this unholy condition was seen to violate God's will. You shall be holy because I am holy in Leviticus 11. The community was concerned about pollution rather than contagion when coming into contact with lepers. Leprosy was regarded as highly symbolic within the sphere of death. As living dead, they were regarded as being under God's judgment. Josephus confirms in his writings, and this is the time from 37 AD to around 100 AD, he says that this was still the situation that lepers had to endure in the time of Christ. Josephus wrote, anyone who touches or lives under the same roof with a leper is regarded unclean, and that such people were kept away from normal society. As an attack on the skin, leprosy threatens or attacks integrity, wholeness, and completeness of the community and its members. The impurity issue then, and that's end of quote, the impurity issue then seems to be similar to the prohibitions on clothing of mixed fabrics, mixing of animal breeds, plowing with an ox and a donkey yoked together, and sowing of mixed seed in a field that we read about in the law. In fact, Leviticus 13, as it talks about leprosy and, and what to do and what the, the people of Israel were to do with leprosy, actually gives uh, an instance if a person is so covered with their leprosy that their skin is absolutely 100% consistently covered with leprosy, they can actually be considered clean. That was a shocker to me when I looked at that and thought, what is God doing here? If it's a contagious illness as we often hear about, and I'm not saying that, there, that it wasn't an illness, I'm not saying that it, it wasn't a health issue, but I'm saying the driving thing here at stake was not that they were sick and that they were concerned of, of catching the sickness. It was a stigma. It was an impurity. It was something that God didn't actually say that the people that had leprosy were, that it was a direct result of their sin, but it was viewed in traditional Jewish culture, as we see in history, as a moral issue. If somebody got leprosy, they were viewed as if it must be because of their own sin. And that it was like a sin issue. In fact, what's interesting is that the law actually gave no provision for the care of lepers and that if one was ever to be healed from it, that the purification required a guilt offering. Not just a bill of clean health. They were cast out. They were cast aside. They were forgotten about. There was no requirement for the family or the community or the neighborhood to bring them anything, to take care of them. They were cast aside and forgotten about. And that seems awfully harsh. In fact, I have, if I'm being honest with you, I have a hard time wrapping my head around that. Why would that be such a case? Why such a stigma? Well, if we think about it, and this is not necessarily an answer, but this is a thought that I have. How much sin in my life is okay? Is a little bit okay? Is a little bit of impurity okay? How much is all right? 
James 2.10 says that if, you're, if you keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, you're guilty of the whole thing. Well, that just doesn't seem fair. Well, what is the standard? This morning, Pastor Brad read Isaiah chapter 6, the passage where Isaiah, he wasn't a leper, he was a normal person, was faced with the presence of God. And as the presence of God came to him, he, his immediate reaction was, woe is me, for I am unclean. I am a man of unclean lips. I live with the people of unclean lips. And he was afraid of being undone by the very God who was so holy, he could, he could take no, he could, he could tolerate no impurity. We look at Ezekiel chapter 1. In fact, why don't you turn there, just uh, Ezekiel chapter 1. Uh, verses 26 through 28. And this is where the Lord comes to Ezekiel, very similar to how he came to Isaiah in the, cha- in the passage that was read this morning. And, and these uh, angelic creatures come first, and then it says in verse 26, it says, and above the expanse over their heads, these, the, the creatures' heads that are described in the previous verses, it says there was the likeness of a throne in appearance like sapphire, and seated above the likeness of a throne was a likeness with a human appearance. And upward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw it as were gleaming metal, like the appearance of fire enclosed all around. And downward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw as it were the appearance of fire, and there was brightness all around him like the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud on the day of rain, so was the appearance of the brightness all around. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell on my face, and I heard the voice of one speaking. Ezekiel fell on his face, could not stand before this God. In Revelation chapter 19, let's just turn there really quickly. Revelation chapter 19. Now we come to Christ. The rider on a white horse. And this is right after the marriage supper of the Lamb. And it says, Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it, is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called... Actually, no, I want to stop right there. uh, I'm going to keep reading otherwise. The point there in reading these passages is to see the standard that is set is God himself in pureness, in holiness, where not even a tiny speck of impurity can be tolerated or exist. In Philippians chapter 2, we see that same Christ that's described in Revelation 19 and who is, I believe, the one who is in Ezekiel chapter 1 and in Isaiah chapter 6, the Lord Jesus Christ himself As the king of kings, it says in Philippians chapter 2 that there will come a day when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord of lords. Thankfully, though, in Philippians chapter 2, before we even get to that point, we see the same Jesus 
submitting himself even to the death of a cross, giving himself for us. And that right there is key as to why that perfect king, that Lord who can tolerate no impurity, does actually give us access to himself. And so, I can't understand exactly why God did some of the things he did and set things the way he did in the Old Testament Israel. What I can tell you is I am thankful that he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to take care of that problem that existed. And that's what we're going to spend the rest of our time looking at this morning. That introductory uh, information just to understand what we're looking at when we think of leprosy and the fact that God himself is so holy and perfect And yet, as we look in the passage of Mark chapter 1 that we just read a few moments ago, we see a leper coming to Christ, and we see Christ interacting with him. The same one who sits on that throne, the same one who rode that, is going to ride that white horse, the same one who in his mighty and power, man has to fall flat on his face stood there with a leper and interacted with him that day. So today as we look at this interaction of the leopard and the, the leper and the Lord, I want to ask you, what would you do? How would you respond? Think about it for a moment. If you were that person who one day, you just started to notice a spot in your skin, and you thought, well, maybe it's just a pimple, maybe it'll go away and it gets worse. Maybe it was some kind of a bug bite. Nope. Weeks go by. It continues to grow. You try to hide it. Maybe you put your sleeve over it and hope that you can just kind of like wait for it to go away. But eventually the time comes when you have to face reality. And you have to face, I've got to go to the priest. I've got to go see what he has to say about it. And they take you through the whole quarantine process that's described in Leviticus 13. And they wait. And no, it doesn't go away. It gets worse. And the day comes where they say, it's time for you to leave. And maybe you're a husband or maybe you're a wife. And you have children and you have your whole life ahead of you. Maybe you have a trade, a craft that you participate in for your livelihood. And you're going to have to turn that all away and walk away and walk outside of the camp and be forsaken and forgotten by your family and by your friends and by the community and left for dead left with no hope of a future, left with nothing, left with the clothes that you're commanded to even tear the very clothes that you have on and pull uh, over you and to, to say, unclean, unclean, that as you're walking to leave to get out of the town or as you would be at the edge of town where you would spend the rest of your time just beyond the city, that if any mother with her children were to walk by and to see you, that she would reel in horror that she would pull her children to the side, probably taking them behind her skirts so that they didn't even have to look at you. You were considered such a stigma, and it's not just because they were afraid that you were contagious. It's not just, let's keep our six feet a distance so that we don't catch what you have. This was a, we don't know what that man did. We don't know what that woman did or that child did. But whatever it is, we want nothing to do with that. It's, it was disgust. It was repulsion. That person was looked at as a living heap of trash. How... Can you imagine being that person? Can you imagine that being your life? 
What hope would you have? You would have no hope of participating in the worship. You would have no hope of worshiping in the tabernacle if it was in the Old Testament or the temple in the time of Christ. You would have no possibility of being involved in that which knit your community together in worship of the Lord himself. You would have, when the, festivi- the festivals came, all of the festivals that, that the Jews uh, routinely had come from time to time, that you, you would probably sit off at the edge of town and you would hear and you would see. You'd probably hear the sounds. You'd see the city changing from their workaday normal life to the festivities when they were celebrating what God had done for them. And you would be out here, out at the outskirts, wasting away with no hope of ever being able to participate in that again, unless by some miracle you could be healed of that and be made clean. And we see the leper that in Mark chapter 1. And here, for those of you that are going to take notes, I'm going to give you our, our quick outline that we're going to look at this morning. It's the leper's request and the Lord's response. And honestly, I'm not a big fan of alliteration and all that kind of stuff. I actually uh, put this together, and I'm going to give you, I'm going to give you just for the note takers. If it helps you to anchor the points, then take this down. But really, what I want you to pay attention to this morning is the content, not necessarily some cute words. But we see that the lepers request, we see the lepers approach. Well, we'll just take one of these, uh, take it one step at a time. The lepers, the lepers' request and the Lord's response. We see, first of all, his approach. He came boldly to Jesus. He wasn't supposed to do that. The leper was supposed to stay away. The leper was supposed to uh, have nothing to do with anybody. And yet, as Jesus came down and was walking along, the leper came boldly to him and... Uh, it says that a leper came in, in verse 40, imploring him, got right in front of him, didn't give him the space that would have been required, but he didn't care. He knew he had a problem. He knew that there was one there that he needed, and he ran desperately to the Lord. It says that he implored. He got boldly in front of the Lord, implored him. He knew that he had a need, and he came boldly to Jesus. We see next his abasement. We see that he positions himself in humility and worship. Well, of course, he was a leper. I mean, what other approach would there be? One of demand? One of expectation? One that maybe he could buy his way into being cleaned? Well, that seems ridiculous. Well, that's what Naaman did. In 2 Kings 5, that's exactly what Naaman did. Naaman demanded, he said, I can, I can offer payment to be made clean. And in fact, when Elisha said, okay, here's what you're going to do. Go dip seven times in the Jordan River. <laughs> Naaman, was, Naaman was indignant. In fact, he left. He actually, instead of saying, oh boy, you know, here's a possibility for me to be, uh, to be taken care of. He said, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to leave. I, there, there are better rivers where I come from. Why would I want to do that? I mean, I don't understand that because if I was in his situation, you could have told me to dip in anything and I would have been willing to dip if that's what it took to be healed. So, yeah, maybe it's a little crazy to think that, well, yeah, of course, of course this leper, this unnamed leper positioned himself in humility before the Lord and got down on his knee in obeisance 
and abased himself. But there have been those that haven't, according to looking at Naaman. He approached the Lord and boldly he came to him. He didn't uh, stand back in the corner. I mean, I wonder how many other lepers maybe were thinking, I wonder if I should go to Christ. I wonder what would happen. Would it work? Would it do any good? I don't know. I'm going to sit back and watch. This leper didn't. He went boldly. He approached the Lord. He got down. He humbled himself. He abased himself. And then next we see the acknowledgement of this leper. He acknowledged his need. Again, you say, well, of course he acknowledged his need. How could he not? The point is he did. The point is that he didn't try to hide it. He didn't try to minimize it. He didn't try to make excuses for it. He went to the Lord, and it's, it's implied as he states to Jesus, you, you can make me clean. If you want to, you can do this. I have a need. You can take care of it. And he acknowledged that he had a need. Then we see the leper's assurance that he trusted Jesus confidently as the solution. You can if you want to. He implored Christ. He begged Christ. Lord, I can't take care of this, but you can. If you want to, you can fix this problem that I have. He was assured that Christ had the power to do it. <laughs> and lastly, we see the accolade. We see that he proclaimed to everyone. Christ said not to. Christ said, you, can, you need to go straight to the priest and do as Moses commanded. You need to you go through the process. That's the right thing to do. And he was so filled with excitement, the leper proclaimed to everyone. Well, why wouldn't he after what Jesus had done? He couldn't keep it silent. He was so filled with joy. Can you imagine? Your life that had been completely over. There was no hope. And yet now, here was hope. Here was joy. Here was cleanliness. He could once again remove that stigma and be reintroduced back into society. And it says he told everyone of what Jesus had done. Well, what was the Lord's response to all of this? Well, first of all, we see the Lord's response. We see his attitude. What was his attitude towards the leper? Well, it says that he had pity on him. He had compassion on him. Who knows the last time anyone had compassion on this man? It could have been years. Who knows the last time somebody pitied him enough to do something about it? Now, I want to pause for just a moment. Uh, I don't know if there's anybody here, when we read this passage, and I read from the ESV this morning, it says that he was moved with pity. If there's anybody reading an NIV this morning, the, the, the uh, word that actually it's used there is that it says that the Lord was indignant. And I just want to point that out. It's just I kind of want to pause and put a little parenthesis here because if you're reading from the NIV, you might look and say, well, wait a minute, you're, you're talking about compassion. It says here that he was indignant. What's going on? Well, I am, no, I am no expert in the matter, but what I can tell you is that the NIV chose to translate from one text that was a later text that, that came along, and uh, pretty much all of the other, uh, most of the other versions out there have, have used what would be considered the majority text and an earlier text, and you can get into all sorts of textual criticism as to which one is correct and which one is right, and like I said, if I gave you an opinion, my opinion wouldn't be worth a whole lot on the matter. But I will say this. The text that the NIV users chose to use has other variants and other issues and other things that the other groups that translated, say, the ESV and some of the other, the, uh, um, the New King James and some of the other ones, they actually looked at and said, there are issues here. We're not going to use that. And so there is, 
I just have to throw it out there. I'm not going to hide. I'm not going to die and say, don't even look at that. That, that, is, a, that is an issue that uh, some translations translate a different way. But even if the Lord was indignant, we'd have to look at, well, what was he indignant about? Or, or the actual Greek word is probably better translated, not indignant, but angered. Angered. Frustrated. Why? Well, if we look at Christ's actions here and his interaction with the leper, he definitely isn't showing indignancy or anger towards the leper himself. He didn't push the, the leper away. He reached out. In fact, that's our next point, is that he touched the, the action there. The Lord's response, his attitude was one of compassion, and his action was one of touching the, the man that not only should he not have touched, but he, had no, he didn't need to touch him. So even in that, we see that Christ... If, if indignant is the right word or anger is the right word, maybe Christ is angry at the, the sin that has so consumed this world, the fallenness of this world, that he's looking at that and, and, and just angered at the devil. I don't know. I, I personally, I think that the correct translation is the one that most uh, translators have chosen to take and that most Greek, almost every text except for well, there's really one with a couple variations of that one that, like I said, came centuries later that everybody else translated as compassion or pity. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stick with that is my opinion and say that even if it was something else, I'm going to say perhaps Christ had pity on the man, compassion on the man, and anger at the sinfulness of the fallen world that he was there to save. Anger at the devil for what the devil was doing. His attitude was one of compassion to the man. His action was one where he touched the very filthy pile of trash that stood before him, the living rubbish heap, this leper, this, this filthy, impure one who probably hadn't been touched in years, probably hadn't had the grasp of a handshake or the touch of a loved one or any kind of touch at all for potentially years. And he was simply asking to be healed. In fact, you know, it's possible that the leper wasn't coming to Christ to be touched. The leper wanted to be cleaned. He asked to be cleaned. He got down in, in humility on his knee and just asked to be cleaned. You know, it's possible that this leper that day when he came to Christ was thinking that Christ might do like Elisha did to Naaman that, that day back in 2 Kings. Maybe he was thinking that Christ would stand back and go, oh, yes, I can definitely take care of you. Go to the Jordan and dip seven times. And if Christ had done that, that would have been justifiable. If Christ had healed them from a distance... That would have been okay. If Christ had told him to go and dip, if Christ had done any of those things, that would have been fine, but he didn't. That day, Christ actually reached out with compassion and pity in his eyes. He reached out and he touched the unclean. And not only did he have an attitude of compassion and he acted by touching the leper, but he had an announcement. What's that announcement? The leper said that if you want to, you can take care of this. If you want to, you can make me clean. What was Christ's response to that? I do want to. I will. If you will, there means if you want to. If it is your desire, you can fix this. And Christ said, it is my desire. 
Christ didn't just take care of it from the man out of some kind of like, okay, fine, I guess I'll do this for you. Christ didn't just take care of it with indifference. Christ reached out and he touched him and he said, I want to take care of this. I will. This is my desire. And then finally we see in the Lord's response, not only the attitude of compassion, the action of reaching out and touching him, the announcement that, yes, I do want to heal you. Not only am I able, but I am desiring. But we see finally Christ's authority. He authoritatively healed them. He said, I do desire this. Be clean. Now this shows Christ's divinity and his power over creation. You know something that's interesting as we look at this in all of the passages, and this, this, uh, this event is uh, recorded not only in our what we're looking at this morning in Mark chapter 1, but it's also in Matthew chapter 8 and Luke chapter 5. And in all those passages, we never once see that after Christ made the leper clean, he does tell the leper to go to Moses and do what's required and be, go through that process. One thing that's interesting, though, we never see Christ going and being made clean. But if you read in the Old Testament, if you read in the law, anybody that touches a leper, anybody who has that contact with them also needs to be made clean. And we never see. Now, it doesn't say one way or another, but what is interesting is that Christ touched him, he made him clean, and then we just see him going about his business as if nothing ever happened. We don't see Christ having to be made whole again, being made clean. One commentator says that uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke do not even mention any purification rites in connection with Jesus and the disciples, not before entering the temple even. He only describes Jesus taking actions that seemingly, seemingly contravene purity regulations found in the Hebrew Bible. These include regulations such as refraining from contact with persons with skin diseases, such as the passage that we're looking at right now. But Jesus touches a leper. Or avoiding contact with women with abnormal menstrual discharge. But Jesus does not object when such a woman touches him. Or avoiding contact with a dead body, which is also found in Numbers chapter 5 and, and Numbers 19, uh, that that would make somebody unclean. But he entered the room of a dead person and he uh, touched the girl. In Matthew chapter 9, he reaches out and touches the dead. In cases where such contact occurs accidentally or is, is necessary, the Hebrew Bible prescribes that the defiled person has to undergo specific purification rites in Numbers 19. But we see none of that. The neglect of such purification rites was reckoned as prohibited and reason to be cut off from the community in Numbers 19. But in the Gospels here, there is no mention made of Jesus undergoing such purification rites. Considering that the readers would have been mostly Jewish Christians, hearing of Jesus' apparent negligence would immediately have been reason for concern. He had just stated that he did not come to abolish the law, but he clearly was not doing the things that the law prescribed. He was the fulfillment of the law. He didn't abolish the law. He was the fulfillment of the law. He purified what he touched rather than being defiled by it and needing to be purified. Only the fulfillment of the law only God himself could have touched the leper and still remained clean. Not only did he do that miracle of cleaning the leper, but he remained clean himself. You know, there was a moment, though, however, in time when he, Christ, did bear the defilement of sin and the fulfilling of the law. The very God, the very one whose presence caused Isaiah to proclaim his fear of being undone, 
the one who caused Ezekiel to fall down on his face and, and not even be able to look at the one that was talking to him, became man and took our sins upon himself and died the death of a sinner. And in exchange, he gave us his righteousness. So the father saw our sin and turned away from God, or turned away from the son. The father turned away from the son at that moment in time. And the father sees the son's righteousness when he looks at us and his wrath is turned away. On that day, the day of the cross, Jesus conquered sin. And we get to continue to wear his righteousness. Just like that leper who was cleaned. So the question then is, what would keep you, O sinner, from being clean? And what would keep you, believer, from living the full and power in, in full power and freedom that Christ's righteousness offers us? Well, as I think of John, First uh, John chapter one that we looked at before, I can think of a couple things, and this is not an exhaustive list, but I can think that our view of sin. In 1 John 1 this morning, we read the, the, the denial of sin. He who says he has no sin, I haven't sinned. Well, that would keep you. That would keep you from being cleaned if you think you don't even need to be cleaned. Or kind of along the same lines there, the redefinition of sin. Well, it isn't actually sin. Either I haven't sinned or it's not sin, so therefore I also haven't sinned. Or even the acknowledgement of sin, but stopping short of confession saying, well, it's just the way I am. Our view of sin could definitely keep us from being cleaned. Imagine if the leper denied his leprosy. Would he have been cleaned that day? Of course not. Or our view of Jesus. Well, maybe he doesn't care about me. Maybe he's too distant. Imagine if the leper said, well, he's too far away. I can't get there. The leper went wherever he needed to go to get in front of Christ, to boldly stand there and to get himself in front of Christ. And no distance was too great. He doesn't want to, perhaps. Maybe, maybe Christ doesn't want to. Maybe just uh, he's, he's disinterested. Maybe he's not really able to. Any of those things that day, any of those thoughts would have kept the leper from being cleaned. And any of those thoughts today would keep you from being cleaned as well. Here's the one, though, that I want to kind of pause on and spend the rest of our time this morning uh, is this one. Maybe he would look at me with this disgust and revulsion like that, like that leper. Well, I did it again. You'll never believe what I did this time, Lord. Oh, really? You think the Lord's going to be surprised if you were to actually come to him and say, Lord, I need to be cleaned. This is, this is where, what I did. This is where I am. You think the Lord's going to be shocked and surprised? Well, I had no idea. Ah, oh, Lord, I just can't get myself to tell you. I just can't get myself to tell you. It's, 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 we live in shame and we live in embarrassment of the sin that we think maybe, maybe we could hide from the Lord. And then the, and then the time comes and you're faced with it and you've got to confess and it's like, oh, Lord, I just don't, don't even look at me. Well, he already knows. He already knows. He knew before the foundation of the world that he created you, he made you. He knows. Many Christians live knowing that God has forgiven them theologically, but hide themselves like Adam and Eve in the garden from the intimacy with Christ 
as if he holds them in contempt. Oftentimes we have this idea, I know I do, that Christ will clean me just like my wife might clean the dirty laundry. He'll do it. The Bible says that he will clean you. The Bible says that forgiveness is offered, but we look at it so theologically, but we kind of sterilize it. We separate it. We think of it as if Christ is taking the laundry and holding it as far out at the end of his hands as he possibly can, holding his nose with his other hand. Yeah, I'll clean you, but stay over there. When in reality... Christ wants to reach out like that leper that day. He wants to reach out and and touch us and embrace us and pull us close and have intimacy with us. Have an intimate, close, loving relationship. Does he want to? Yes, he does. Just like that leper that day. Well, can we come to Jesus for cleansing today like the leper did? Well, Matthew 11 says in verse 28 and 29, it says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Like the leper, Jesus draws close to the needy, the broken, the weary. He reaches out with his perfect touch, not dispensing from afar, not dispensing from a distance. He doesn't just stay over here and toss out grace and mercy, hoping that maybe we can catch it. He comes to us. Christ came to this earth, became a man like Philippians chapter 2 talks about, and he became man and died the death of the cross, and he is close. He is nearby. He doesn't dispense from afar, but he dispenses with his touch. Consider the following words by the 19th century Scottish Baptist pastor Andrew McLaren. I'm going to read a lengthy bit here. But it says, whatever the reason, the fact is plain that Mark delights to dwell on Christ's touch. The instances are these first. He put out his hand and lift, he put out his hand and lifts up Peter's wife's mother, and immediately the fever, fever leaves her in Mark chapter one. Then, unrepelled by the foul disease, he lays his pure hand upon the leper. That's the story we looked at this morning. And the living mass of corruption is healed in Mark chapter 1. Again, he lays his hand on the clammy marble of the dead child's forehead, and she lives in Mark 5. Further, we have the incidental statement that he was so hindered in his mighty works by unbelief that he could only lay his hands on a few sick folk and heal them in Mark chapter 6. We find next two remarkable incidences, peculiar to Mark, both like each other and unlike our Lord's other miracles. One is the gradual healing of that deaf and dumb man whom Christ took apart from the crowd, laid his hands on him, thrust his fingers into his ears, as if he would clear some impediment, touched his tongue with saliva, said to him, be opened, and the man could hear in Mark chapter 8. The other is the gradual healing of a blind man whom our Lord again leads apart from the crowd, takes by the hand, lays his own kind hands upon the poor, sightless eyeballs, and with singular slowness of progress effects a cure, not by a leap and a bound, as he generally does, but by steps and stages, tries it once and finds partial success, applies the curative process again, and then the man can see in Mark chapter 8. And that's not to imply that Christ didn't make it right the first time. Uh, That that was the way Christ decided to do that. The point is, though, the touch. He came near. He came close. He, He touched these people, putting his fingers even in their ears. And it says here, 
Um, in, uh, in addition to these instances, there are two other incidents, incidents which may also be adduced. It is Mark alone who records for us the fact that he took little children in his arms and blessed them. And it is Mark alone who records for us the fact that when he came down from the Mount of Transfiguration, he laid his hand upon the demoniac boy, writhing in the grip of his tormentor, and lifted him up. Christ's pity is shown by his touch to have this true characteristic of true pity, that is, that it overcomes disgust. All real sympathy does that. Christ is not turned away by the shining whiteness of the leprosy, nor by the eating pestilence beneath it. He is not turned away by the clammy marble hand of the poor dead maiden, nor the fevered skin of the old woman gasping on her palate. He lays hold on each, the flushed patient, the loathsome leper, the sacred dead, with all equalizing touch of a universal love and pity, which disregards all that is repellent and overflows every barrier and pours itself over every sufferer. We have the same pity of the same Christ to trust and to lay hold of today. He is high above us and yet bending over us, stretching his hand from the throne as truly as he puts it out when here on earth, and ready to take us all to his heart in spite of our weakness and wickedness, our failings and our shortcomings, the fever of our flesh and heart's desire, the leprosy of our many corruptions and the death of our sins, and to hold us ever in the strong, gentle clasp of his divine, omnipotent, and tender hand. This Christ lays hold on us because he loves us and will not be turned from his compassion by the most loathsome foulness of ours. His actions in today's passage and throughout the gospel is not of revulsion from, but of drawing to the lost and the broken. In his recent book, Gentle and Lowly, Dane Ortland says, the cumulative testimony of the four Gospels is that when Jesus Christ sees the fallenness of the world all about him, his deepest impulse, his most natural instinct, is to move toward that sin and suffering, not away from it. And this, remind, let me remind you, is the same Christ, the same God that we read about at the beginning when we looked at Isaiah chapter 6 and Ezekiel chapter 1 and Revelations chapter 19. The same one in all his splendor and glory that causes Isaiah to be undone and Ezekiel to fall on his face. The same one who in, a, in Revelations chapter 19 is shown to be, to have a sword coming out of his mouth to conquer the nations. The same one who in Philippians chapter 2 has said that every knee will bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord of lords. That same one, none other, touched the leper that day. That same one reaches out to each of us. It's not because we deserve it. It's not because there is something in us that would cause him to find something desirable. It's because of who he is and his character and his nature that he loves us when we're still that heap of rubbish. Have you come to the point where you fear maybe you have messed up one too many times? Maybe you went too far this time. Are you avoiding him for fear of his response? What was his response to the leper? What response do you expect it to be this time with you? Are you afraid that your shame and guilt might actually have overcome his grace this time? Do I deserve it? That is his grace? Of course not. Did the leper? No, he didn't either. Is there any inherent goodness in us that would draw him to us? Absolutely not. Yet, he invites us tenderly all the same. So my challenge to you today, I don't know who you are 
that that this is that the Lord has brought this forward this, this morning. But my challenge is to run headlong to him. Humble yourself like the leper did. Confess your need like the leper did. Trust that he does want to clean you like the leper did. That he can and that he will. Let's pray. Lord, I just pray that you would take these words this morning. And I don't know the heart of each person here. I only know my own heart. I know that I am like that leper in need of you. Each of us was born with a need for salvation. Each of us was born like that leper in filth. We could say, well, how bad could it really be? The tiniest little speck would be worse, would be, would be bad enough. And also, each of us have daily the need for your grace that you offer us to walk in the power and the fullness of what you've called us for. And so oftentimes, Lord, I know of myself, and I know that we all are the same. I know that I cower instead of, I know I'm forgiven. I know that you've done this for me. I know theologically, I know all the things in my head, but yet I cower away from you. I hide in the corner. I hide like Adam and Eve did. I know you know. I know that you see. I know that you're omniscient. And yet I still cower as if somehow maybe I could keep this little bit from you. Maybe it's because I want to hold on to it. Maybe it's because I'm so ashamed. Maybe I think it's because this one time you won't actually turn to me. If I call upon you, what if, what if you don't actually answer? What if this one time I call out and this one time you finally say enough is enough and you turn away and you reject? But we see from the examples given here this morning that that is not the God that you are, that you are compassionate, that you want to heal us, that you reach out near and close to us, and that you, you fix the problem that we have, this problem called sin which is so far greater than leprosy. Leprosy was a symbol. Leprosy was a horrible thing. I can't imagine being that leper that day. But I have something far worse. I was born a sinner that kept me eternally from you, except that Jesus, the same Jesus who reached out and touched the leper and cleaned him, also came down, died on the cross, took my sin, and washed it away. Lord, I pray that as we go out of here this morning, that we will be reminded that you are the God of compassion and mercy because of who you are, not because of who we are. And that we can be confident in that. We can approach you and we can be cleaned. And I pray all these things in Jesus' holy name. Amen.